Opera Upstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today we are going to be talking about composer drama. Composer drama between composers, between composers and singers, and between composers and just audiences in general. And we might have a little bit of a, a, a hot or not list going too. I'm so excited. <laughs> but before we do that, I have a couple announcements. First of all, our Opera Watch Party is this week. We do those on the second Friday of every month. This week, we are going to be watching a fairy tale opera, which we will have you guys vote on on our Instagram. So that'll be on our stories on Wednesday. So make sure to follow us on Instagram to see that. And then on Friday, we will be watching that at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern. Then on Sunday, we're going to do an IG Live where we will play the game Most Likely To, where we will have a bunch of options and we will vote what voice part is most likely to do this. It will be funny. It will be savage. So please join us, and we will also be taking audience votes for that one. And then finally, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's super helpful. It tells us what you like, what you don't like, and it just lets other people find our podcast. We've lately been getting ranked on some of the charts in other countries. We got ranked in Denmark and Great Britain and Germany, and it's very exciting. But American listeners, I need you to step up. Yeah, our American listeners, our friends, we need you to show us some love so that we can chart in America as well. (laughs) But hey, all of our European listeners, and we have some in Canada too and just across the globe, we love you. Thanks for putting us on charts. You guys are awesome. Yeah, Denmark, Sweden, like uh, Ireland. We have a bunch of listeners in Ireland, so we're so excited to have you. Thank you, guys. Yes. All right. So, Michelle, I think you're going to start us off. Oh, yes. Let me first just say that composers are wild people. I mean, as are musicians in general, but I feel like composers are like a certain niche of just hilarious and wild people. Uh, (laughs) But let's just start it off with good old Brahms. Okay. I love Brahms. I don't know why I feel like an affinity towards him and his music, but I took a Brahms course that was just on Brahms and his larger orchestral works. And one of the funniest things that I learned there that kind of blew my mind was when little Babby Brahms was only 10, he absentmindedly got knocked down and run over by a wagon, (laughs) like across his abdomen and chest. That's incredible that didn't just kill him, considering the time period. Absolutely. It's shocking that he survived first. And he was like bedridden for months. You know, it like it definitely did wreck him, but he somehow escaped without any lasting damage. Like it never affected him later in life. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's pretty insane. Like I said, considering the time, that's just one of those things where we're like, guess I'll die now. (laughs) Right. And but like also, isn't that just isn't it insane to think that we could potentially not have had Brahms because he could have been killed as a child? Brahms's choral music to me, I always call it like the candy of choral music in that I don't know that it's not like my favorite, but it's very easy to enjoy. It's hard not to enjoy a Brahms choral work. Yeah. Anyway. It's all low and it's all moody and kind of sexy. And it's Mm -hmm. just, I love, I love me some Brahms, big fan over here. But anyways, you know, it would be ridiculous to do an episode on composer drama and not talk about Brahms and... Clotta because how could you not like this is the most famous thing and it's the thing that infamously your teacher will dance around and be like well some people this is something that actually really bothers me in history courses because obviously in the grand scheme of things is 
you know, speculation about Brahms and Clara having some sort of like affair of real importance, perhaps not. But it's also just something that's super fun to talk about and gives you a lot of insight on these people. So I hate it when you're in a history course and they're like, it doesn't matter. It's not related to the music. We're moving on. And I'm like, why do you deprive me of this juicy drama? I need it. Cover more sex scandals in music history. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, regardless on whether or not you think that they, you know, got it on or whatever, I just think that the story of them two is... They definitely did. You know, (laughs) whichever side you fall on, it's just very interesting. And when you read the letters that they sent to each other, it's honestly beautiful. And to me, I think there's literally no doubt that they truly and deeply loved one another. And it's kind of sad because I really do wish that they had worked out because I think that this would have brought Brahms a lot of happiness because he was just kind of a stormy individual. But let me just read you a a very beautiful letter that Brahms wrote to Clara in 1856. So he said, I wish I could write to you as tenderly as I love you and tell you all the good things that I wish you. You are so infinitely dear to me, dearer than I can say. If things go on much longer as they are at the present, I shall have some time to put you under glass or to have you set in gold. If only I could live in the same town with you and my parents. Do write me a nice letter soon. Your letters are like kisses. Excuse me? (laughs) It's hard for me to think of that and not see that as intensely romantic. Because it is. But also, can I say how funny it is that he throws his parents in there? He's like, if only I could live in a town with you and my parents. (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. And like as a person who does have very, very close friendships, that still feels very romantic to me. Your letters are like kisses. I shall have some time to put you under glass or have you set in gold. Come on. You may just say that to your friends, okay? (laughs) I'm going to send that. That's what I'm sending you for Valentine's Day next year. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Fabulous. But isn't that just so sweet? Yeah. I mean, it's just so hard to assume. That's beautiful. This is just a small example of the letters that they wrote to each other. Quarantine has also made me very, very mushy. Like, I cried during the wedding in Parks and Rec this week while rewatching, so it doesn't take a lot to melt me right now. Amazing. (laughs) No, that's beautiful. But Clara writes him also a letter in 1856, and she says, um, this is after, you know, Robert died, and she says, He came to me as a true friend to share with me all my sorrow. He strengthened my heart as it was about to break. He lifted my thoughts, lightened when it was possible, my spirits. In short, he was my friend in the fullest sense of the word. And she goes on to say, I can truly say, my children, that I have never loved a friend as I loved him. It is the most beautiful mutual understanding of two souls. Come on! She kind of half friend zoned him during that, though. Yeah, but she like the way that she talks about her friendship is just like this is like when you're dating somebody and you're like, this is my best friend. Yeah, it's that. Oh, except for absolutely. They're not dating. And even then you have to consider like what it would be like to be a woman who, you know, Clara Schumann loved her husband. There's not a doubt in my mind about that. So I think. Oh, absolutely. I think when you're looking at that and after his death. You have to also consider the societal implications of being with another person. There's a lot to that, too. That's the thing that makes it so tricky because it's not like Robert and Clara weren't the biggest item of, like, classical couples, right? The song cycles they wrote for each other. Yeah. I mean, 
Robert composed like 130 works in the first year they were married. We're not blind to the fact that Claudia always had it pretty good. Oh, yeah. You know? And so that's the thing that makes it all the more juicy. Yeah. Is because she's coming from this other famous relationship. And so it's just wild. Yeah. Just crazy. But I feel for Brahms because... He just, like, underwent so much trauma early on, which I think just spills into the rest of his life and the way that he treats his relations, both, you know, romantically and platonically with other people. He grew up basically in the slums, and his father is just also a bizarre figure. And, you know, we have evidence to believe that he was, like, sexually abused as a very young child. So it's just, like, it's he's just so interesting to me. But also, Brahms was a little bit of a shit starter. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, <laughs> Brahms was a little bit of a dick. <laughs> yeah. Cause here's, so here's the thing. Because Brahms does not only have, like, a beautiful relationship with Clara. When it comes to other musicians, like, for example, Liszt. So Liszt, I mean, Liszt is, like, the original rock star. You know, that's listomania, this whole idea. Like, he was one of the first people where there was truly, like, this huge crowd of fans. People wanted locks of his hair, you know, all all of that. List was Justin Bieber. <laughs> yeah, but as comes with kind of being a rock star, there's this idea that, I mean, List was kind of new school. I mean, when you listen to his music and compare it to Brahms, he was really going for these new harmonic patterns and things, whereas Brahms is much more traditional. There's no doubt about it when you listen to Brahms' music that he's kind of the old school of that era. For sure. Doesn't make it not beautiful, but Liszt was more of a progressive in that aspect. They hated each other. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about, I guess, old school feuds is that they rarely speak to each other. The things, like Brahms, I couldn't actually find a quote from Brahms on what he said about Liszt music, but I did find quotes from Clara which I thought was humorous. <laughs> so Clara Schumann says in the aspect of Liszt, he gives me the impression of being a spoilt child. And then she also says, that is just meaningless noise, not a single healthy idea anymore. Everything confused. A clear harmonic progression is not to be found here any longer. So on that aspect, but actually the thing about Brahms uh, was that he apparently went to the premiere of Liszt's piano sonata in B minor and fell asleep. <laughs> which is hard for me to believe when it comes to anything written by Liszt, because I actually find, you know, a lot of Liszt music to be uh, not relaxing in the slightest. <laughs> I actually, I love Liszt's piano music. But on the opposite side, Liszt looked at Brahms and found his music hygienic but unexciting, which is almost worse. To just be like, ah, oh, yes, this is adequate. That's hilarious. Now, on the other hand, Brahms and Tchaikovsky uh, were openly hateful to each other that makes me sad because i feel like their music would have grooved if they like got along yeah that is kind of a funnier one because like list and brahms comparing their music you can kind of be like i can see where these people would really butt heads right yeah but, but tchaikovsky called brahms a giftless bastard and a conceited <gasps> mediocrity that is regarded as genius you actually don't see brahms actually saying much stuff out loud which is funny but tchaikovsky was very much but once again, the only recorded thing I can find about Brahms is that he fell asleep at the premiere of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. I don't know why Brahms was so tired all the time or why he kept going out to things and then falling asleep at them. I think he might have avoided a lot of problems if he didn't go out while tired. Brahms just has a bad habit of going and falling asleep at other people's concerts. You know, Jesse, carrying existential dread is a heavy burden to bear. <laughs> 
Brahms is just falling asleep left and right. And I love I love that these quotes or some of these quotes are from him just, you know, being petty and shit talking about people to Clara. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, clearly, Clara is like kind of his mouthpiece at different points. But here's the other thing that Tchaikovsky says, because even then he wrote in an 1878 letter to his patroness, Tchaikovsky talks again about Brahms like Brahms lived in Tchaikovsky's head rent free. He was just completely overtaken with this. Even though it doesn't seem like Brahms was actually saying much back. He would say, Herr Brahms, I considered you to be a very untalented person, full of pretensions, but utterly devoid of creative inspiration. I rate you very poorly indeed, and I look down upon you. Written in a letter to someone else. (laughs) Oh, I love how petty everybody is in these days. It's so good. But actually, years later, I'm wondering if Brahms just had a really bad reputation. Because years later... Tchaikovsky actually meets Brahms and he says that he actually found Brahms the person to be very endearing as a person. They were never friends, but after he actually meets him, he never really continues this. So my guess is that Brahms actually had a a reputation that very much preceded him, that he was like full of himself and believed he was much better than I think Brahms may have even said in person. I think this is one of those things where your reputation precedes you. Oh, well, yeah. I mean... I don't know of a composer who lives under a larger shadow and like li- like lives in anxiety about how he ranks. That's very, very interesting. But it's factual that Brahms is a very hot and cold person. He loved to argue with people. He loved to play devil's advocate. Um, he's obviously very intelligent. And I don't think that a lot of people always wanted to play those games with him. And yeah, I mean, everyone knows a Brahms, though. Yeah, but I mean, like, it's so true because he could be 100% endearing and then just literally destroy you in a line. You know, he was just a very interesting, very, once again, stormy individual. Like, I feel like you just really didn't know which Brahms you were going to get day to day. Oh, yeah. So, so funny. But, you know, what made me laugh is when when I was making the, the graphic for this this week's episode, Brahms is hot? <laughs> And I wasn't, like, I knew that, but, like, I wasn't ready because I hadn't really seen that photo of him. So (laughs) I typed in, and it's actually very interesting because you see actually a lot of writing of people talking about how young Brahms was, like, really handsome. And so I literally just typed into Google, Brahms handsome. (laughs) And I encourage you to do that for yourself because so much comes up. And what made me laugh is there's this article by Classic FM, LOL, called 12 Composers Who Were Total Heartthrobs in Their 20s. And Jesse, I just want you to go through these with me and we'll throw them up on our stories on Instagram. And we just got to vote. We just got to vote. Yeah. So I sent you the link. Do you have it pulled up? Yes, I am. I am currently looking at this. Okay. What do you think of uh, Chopin? I already know which one I think is the hottest, so... What do I think of Chopin? <laughs> yeah. I I have so much trouble with the weird chin strap beard. <laughs> That's very fair. I don't know. He has pretty eyes and nice eyebrows. I'm a big fan of his full kind of wavy hair. Yeah. I mean, he's cute. I just, I... like, the chin strap's really upsetting. <laughs> Their comment on the website is Chopin was 10% musical genius and 90% cheekbones. <laughs> I'm going to say this. He's not unattractive. I don't mean to say that. I just have like a weird thing about facial hair. 
Yeah. And the number one part of that is chin strap beards are upsetting. <laughs> yeah. So next we have Brahms. <laughs> He's so soft. <laughs> he is a soft boy. This is not as good of, of a photo as the one that I used, I think. Brahms has a tumbler of his own poetry. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Brahms is an e-boy. <laughs> I I've often forget that Brahms was blonde. Oh, I mean, it's hard to tell with old photos. He's got some swagger yeah. to him, too. Like, that pose, is, it's pretty, it's got some swagger to it. We'll link, we'll have to actually link to this. Oh, yeah, no, I'll throw it up on stories. Yeah. But I need Brahms to <laughs> revive himself and drop his skincare routine because he's beautiful. <laughs> also, he has really nice eyes. He is. He also has very strong cheekbones. Yes, and he's got a good nose, and his lips are very nice, too. I think I have a crush on Brahms. <laughs> you very much do. Michelle texted me, actually, a photo of Brahms and goes, I don't think I can be this pretty. <laughs> uh, amazing. <laughs> Yeah, he's also very dapper. I like the suit that he's wearing. Okay, ne- next we have Gershwin. And Gershwin doesn't do anything for me, to be honest. I feel like this is also like a very bad picture of him. Yeah, it's a side f- it's a side face one. Yeah. A, what, a profile. <laughs> okay. Um, can we talk about Bernstein though? Bernstein's hot as hell. He's he's very attractive. Fine. You know, when I look at this picture, I actually debate on whether or not Brahms is my top pick. Oh, because this is just an abnormally great picture of him. Have you ever just seen... There's a shirtless picture of him, too. I'm just going to throw that out there that it's on the internet. <laughs> he's very attractive. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean... Wow. I mean, he's easily my number one on this list, without a doubt. Yeah. He's a beautiful, beautiful man. He's got very strong uh, eyebrows, too, which is nice. He's just attractive. He's just a very, like, classically handsome... Yeah. Tall, dark, and handsome. Yeah. It's the hair for me, too. That's a nice swoop. No, I was going to say my problem with the next one on this list. Clara Schumann is is on this list, and this drawing of her is very pretty, but it's also a drawing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know why they did that. I think they wanted to include a female composer, but also didn't want to choose someone modern. I have no clue. She looks beautiful in this, though. Yeah, but we also have photos of Clara, so I don't know why they chose a drawing. I know. She's from the same era. Kind of bizarre. But she was very pretty. We love a hottie. We love that both both Brahms and Kalata make the list, so just a couple of hot. Brahms list is actually um, the e-boy of this page, because he's basically Timothy Chalamet. Exactly my thoughts. Yes. he. I mean, look at those cheekbones. He's very, very skinny. He's also, I believe, if I'm correct, List was also quite tall. He looks like somebody that would be tall, but I don't know. He's very fancy. Yeah, he's six foot one. So he's he's Wild. tall and skinny, and he's got those eyes that basically look like he has not slept in several years. And it's very e-boy chic. Yeah. Like, even if you took this exact outfit and picture and everything, he could be leading his own punk band. Totally. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, he looks um, every bit the rock star he was of his era. <laughs> yeah. Totally. We love a moody boy. Next on this list is Elgar, and he really does grow a fantastic mustache. It's beautiful. He also has beautiful skin, too. I, I actually find him very attractive. And he has nice eyebrows. He's he's cute. It's a lot of mustache, you know? I'm not going to lie. But, like, he's yeah. very much classically handsome. Like, no doubt about it. I don't know why, but I feel a like... A beautiful, strong nose. I would meet him at, like, a Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. Like, you know. But he kind of he kind of gives me, like... He gives me uncle vibes, though. <laughs> like, I'm don't not attracted to, to him, even though he's cute. <laughs> don't hit me with that. <laughs> 
I don't know. That's the vibe that I'm getting from him. He seems like very, like from picture alone, seems very quiet. Like he just is kind of a homebody and he like woodworks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think he's cute. He looks sweet. He looks like somebody <laughs> that would be very sweet to you. But I don't I don't know that much about his relationships. So but his, his little face in this one looks like he would be like very gentle and kind. I feel like somebody's going to send us a DM and be like Elgar was the worst or something. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure they will. But 1867 Tchaikovsky could literally walk out today and also fit in just as well. He has beautiful hair. Yeah, he actually has like the haircut TM. Of right now, yeah, the big swoop on top. Um, I don't love the beard, I'm not going to lie to you, but... It's a little unkempt, but I'm not bothered by it. He looks like somebody that would be like a coffee roaster. Like, I feel like I'm going to find him at like a very chic, urban type coffee shop. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like the kind of person that like writes their phone number on the coffee cup that they give you, like that kind of that kind of vibe. But one of my favorite stories about Tchaikovsky, looking at him, because he looks kind of hyper masculine in this, but actually he and Camille Cesson loved ballet so much that they once broke into the Moscow Conservatory and they did an entire ballet, just the two of them dancing. Oh, right. Does isn't he a little cuter for having known that? Yeah, I love Tchaikovsky. Next we have Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn just looks too young to me. Also a painting. Yes. <laughs> he looks like a cherub. He does. In the best way. He just looks very young and innocent and... Not um, attractive to me. Very angelic. <laughs> right? Yeah. He does. And then Rachmaninoff... Looks straight out of a Tim Burton movie. <laughs> Once again, just very large, kind of deep-set eyes. His hair is a little messy and everything. But I actually think he looks very cute. Yeah. He looks very young in this. That's the other problem with it. But yeah, I don't know. I feel it. I I think it's also his he posture. Looks like the awkward teen brother. Yeah. Well, I think that's the other thing. It's uh. like Rachmaninoff once again, just like very tall and lanky. Yeah. Oh yeah, Rachmaninoff was six six. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. That is a giant man. Yeah. I mean, but that's <gasps> just like the thing about oh. Rachmaninoff. I mean, I guess that makes sense because like of his giant hands. Yeah. But. Wild. I didn't know he was 6'6". Six, six. He's just That's large. That's nuts. <laughs> That's a big boy. <laughs> what do you think of Mahler? That's a hard pass for me. Mahler looks like he's about to debate me on anything I say, and that's what upsets me. Mahler just looks like he's going to do nothing but be like, well, have you considered? And that's everything about this picture reminds me of people I don't like. And that's not Mahler's fault. <laughs> Yeah, this is not a good picture of Mahler. Every part of his picture is unkempt, though. Like, his tie doesn't look like it, or cravat, I'm not sure what that is, doesn't look like it's tied right. The mustache is unkempt. The hair is a little wild, and it reminds me of, like, the style of hair every kid had in, like, the 90s, but they were five. Just not my type. No. Like I said, he also, like, just something about the look he's giving in that photo makes me think he's going to fight me. Yeah. And lastly, we have Ravel. This is a bad picture of Ravel. (laughs) I think that he's like, he's cute. Like, he's the kind of guy that, like, this is so bad. You might have to cut this out. Oh, it's definitely staying in. <laughs> but <laughs> this photo of Ravel looks like the guy who's going to be, like, kind of kind of embarrassed to hold your hand in public, but, like, destroy you in the bedroom. <laughs> oh, no, it's definitely staying in. I'm not going anywhere. Like, just this photo, he looks like a kinky dude. I hate to say, you know? you're going to be upset now because I'm going to say this, but the reason I think I don't like him is that he looks so much like, can you look something up on your computer? Yeah. 
Look up young Prince Charles. <laughs> That's accurate. Yeah, he looks like a. Yeah, young... they both have that kind of like bony quality to them. Yeah, and kind of like where like, like they figures have... stick out just a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of a bonier nose and jaw. Yeah, with per- with big cheekbones. Don't get me yeah. wrong. I think Ravel is much more attractive than that. But I think once again, it's because he reminds me of Prince Charles that like it weirds me out on a different level. <laughs> So Ravel's not, once again, nobody on this list is unattractive. There are certain qualities that are not anyone's fault. But chin strap beards, looking like you're going to debate me, and looking like Prince Charles are the main offenses. Yeah, all of these people are, are hotties in their own unique way. I can't believe I avoided making just a large other part of body joke for Rachman enough, only for you to go to the next one and be like, he would destroy in the bedroom. That's the vibe that Ravel is giving me, okay? That's what I'm seeing. But regardless, I have a funny story about Ravel. Excellent. Not really a story, but just an interesting fact with... Hit me with it. <laughs> my comments aside. <laughs> Ravel was just fascinated with objects. I think the correct term is animistic. What? And that he believed that a lot of like objects had a soul. Like inanimate objects plants etc so it's just funny because like if you visit his house which is now a museum everything is kind of like a dollhouse because he was pretty short he was five two so he had smaller than average doorways and low ceilings and stuff so it just gave like a very kind of like storybook tiny cottage vibe Um, and he was convinced that like mechanical toys and stuff like that had a soul and he also felt like similarly towards clothing and there's a funny story because like Ravel was kind of known to be very well put together in the way that he dressed and apparently once on tour he delayed a concert for half an hour and made his soprano soloist go dash to the station to collect the right pair of shoes that he had left behind in his luggage and so he literally stopped everything so that he could get the proper shoes for his outfit and I love him for that so sweet (laughs) But I love that because like Isn't that hilarious. I that is very funny. He's like, my outfit is not complete. <laughs> I love the soprano soloist just leaves the building to go get his shoes. That's like just hilarious. That's to us me. though, because we would. <laughs> uh, his fit was not together. But the fact that like he gave souls to things, like I I get that on a certain level. I unintentionally personify things. Oh yeah, um, and give personality and like life you know the Marie Kondo method of like clearing things out I think that's why it works so well for people is like there's something nice about saying thank you even to an inanimate object because even though things don't really have that quality they play such a role in our lives anyway that's cute that's very sweet isn't that funny on a sad note uh Cezanne did not feel the same way about Ravel I have a huge list of quotes that I'm just gonna throw in as necessary but for example Cezanne on the other hand said of Ravel if he'd been making shell casings during the war, it would have been better for music. <gasps> Yikes. All these composers are so cutthroat. Yeah. Like... So Cezanne danced with Tchaikovsky, but did not like Ravel. <laughs> he draws the line. Once again, though, like, especially Tchaikovsky, some of these people just spend all of their time just insulting other people. I was talking about Tchaikovsky earlier and talking about how much he just, like, ripped apart Brahms and then was like, well, Brahms himself is not that bad, though I don't like his music but even Tchaikovsky on like Handel he said Handel is fourth rate he's not even interesting that's hilarious Tchaikovsky had strong opinions 
He's coming for everybody. Oh, absolutely. That's hilarious. <laughs> but I will say this. My favorite of all the quotes I could find for this, my favorite quote is Copeland, who says, listening to the Fifth Symphony of Rayfon Williams is like staring at a cow for 45 minutes. I don't understand what that means. Why you gotta be hating on the cows? I think that's funny, though, because anyone who's ever listened to Rayfon Williams can kind of go, yeah, I mean, I like Rayfon Williams, but also he's not wrong. Like, there's something very pastoral about a lot of the music. Oh, absolutely. Oh, very, very funny. Okay. Uh, that is pretty good. Okay. And at least somewhat accurate. And I think, I think the other thing that's kind of weird is considering what composers live around the same time. Mm-hmm. For example, it's weird to think about Beethoven talking about Rossini. Like, it just, in yeah, my mind, really weird. they don't exist in the same universe. But <laughs> Beethoven said of Rossini, Rossini would have been a great composer if his teacher had spanked him enough on the backside. Oh? Which is funny, because I don't think of Beethoven as, like, a very reserved pianist in any way. Like, he's very much romantic. And so it's funny to think him of him looking at Rossini's music and going, too much! Yeah. But as a person who's had to sing Rossini runs, I also understand. <laughs> so true. Yeah, when I was looking up like little funny factoids about these composers, apparently Beethoven was so like high strung that he would count out exactly 60 beans every time he wanted to make a cup of coffee. And that to me is very funny and it kind of makes sense. <laughs> like He seems like he would be that type of person. So, uh, there is an interesting time for Beethoven where Beethoven lived in Vienna and very often what would happen is there would be improvisation contests between pianists. And so basically what would happen is patrons, one patron would back one pianist and then they would host it in their house. Basically what happens is Daniel Steibel, who is a piano virtuoso, comes into town partially to grow his fame because Vienna is kind of the make it or break it place in that time for music. And the patrons of the city in general get together and say, like, we want to see Daniel face off against Beethoven, right? And Beethoven, being yeah. a person who needs money, says yes. <laughs> and so basically what happens is they would get together and each person would make a tune and the other person would improvise on it and it would go back and forth until someone declared a winner. So they get together and Steibelt shows up, has this piece of music that he's written and tosses it to the side, kind of showing off. It's a, you know, he's being like, I don't even need to look at this. And so uh, he was actually very known for making like very stormy music, heavy on bass and things like that, like really working things up into a fervor, which is once again funny when you consider Beethoven because that's literally what he's known for. <laughs> that's his brand. That is very much his brand. So anyway, he does this whole thing. There's a bunch of applause. So Beethoven gets up. He picks up the piece of music that Steibelt had dropped on the ground, turns it upside down and starts to play it. Yo. This is like epic rap battle. Oh, yeah. He's like, listen, I can play your music and I can play it better than you upside down. Uh, and then he picks just like the first couple or first three notes of it. And he starts to play it and embellish it. And he takes on the stormy quality that he has. And he goes so far that people were saying that he parodied and mocked it. Which when you consider that musically, it's very funny. Like, how could you do something so much that you actually end up parodying it? That's fantastic. Steibelt was so wrecked by what Beethoven did with his music that he left Vienna and he never came back while Beethoven lived there. <gasps> <laughs> he literally ran him out of town. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting context to put on some people because 
we obviously know a couple of virtuosos from every era, and it's funny to try and think about how they compared to the other people of that time. Like, were there contemporaries who were just as good but not as well known? And this is kind of that proof that there are some people who are just beyond the beyond in terms of their genius. Yeah. No, that's that's pretty funny. That actually reminds me of Steve Reich and Philip Glass, because obviously we both know them as like the pioneers of minimalism. And they literally were part of the same Juilliard class. They were even born like within a couple months of one another. So it's just kind of interesting thinking about how they were kind of just at New York at the same time. And I think they kind of had a falling out because you do have two people who are kind of working within the same field who are these huge figures who are, I would say, on pretty equal playing fields. And so I think that their like ego and fame just turned into something a little bit less friendly. But they remind me a lot of Maria Callas and Renata Tabaldi in that in the end, you know, like 2012 and 2014, they're like, oh, no, like, we're okay. And now they perform together and like do different things. Philip Glass later says on that whole thing, he's like, really, we're not competing any more than anyone else is for the resources to make and perform music. Yeah. And they're both like, you know being in music is is difficult for everybody it's like don't take it out of context you know our relationship was competitive their particular niche they really are competing for the same resources yeah and you know it's kind of like what you said when you have two people who are on an equal playing field it is difficult when you're working in such a niche field like minimalism at the time yeah on a on a separate note of just something this story was told to be the first time I ever actually did the show. And this is actually the first show Michelle and I ever did together, which is Cosi Fan Tutte, which has a very famous story. And I think this is one of my favorite incidents to explain that not everything a composer writes is purposeful art. <laughs> so there was a soprano whose name was uh, Adriana Ferrarese del Bene. Ah, uh, yes. She, so we don't really know her today. I might be wrong. There might be people who know <laughs> But I know her solely because she was the original Fiordaligi in Cosi Fantute. And anyone who has sung Come Scoglio knows how crazy that aria oh, yeah. is. It goes high, low. It takes a lot. It's a lot of navigating your registers. And it's easy to think that, like, you know, he just wanted to really stretch the music or anything. No. Mozart hated her. <laughs> hated working with her. Hated almost everything about her it's hilarious that she was even in the show that he hated her so much probably had something to do with the contract with the theater but he knew that she has a really bad tendency of raising her head when she sings high notes and lowering it when she sings low notes so he (laughs) he made those crazy leaps because it made her look stupid it made her look like her head was bobbing like she was i believe it said like a chicken pecking rice He did it purposefully to mess with one of his own lead actresses, which is to say that sometimes composers are petty and sometimes it's not about art. I love honestly any story about Mozart is automatically amusing to me because he really is just a petty king and I love him for it. Petty, petty man. Oh, a petty and talented man. (laughs) So many issues. He's intensely childish too. Like he's, he's like a lot of child stars. That don't necessarily always grow up. Yeah. And if you've ever been to Mozart's house, one of the funniest things you'll see, most people know about the fact that he wrote a lot of music uh, about ass. (laughs) But also in his home, he has dartboards that are basically just people spreading their cheeks. (laughs) Yeah, Mozart was a wild figure. 
Yeah. I mean, he was he was a person. That's just the thing. And he was intensely famous and he spent his money poorly. Like, there's a lot you could talk about with Mozart. But I just love that every soprano in that show sense has had to deal with basically Mozart's pettiness towards one singer. Yeah. And it's so true. That aria is a beast. You have to be a pretty specific uh, voice type to be able to sing that role. Strong low. Oh, yeah. That's why I think you sometimes see almost like Wagnerian sopranos kind of take it on because you have to have a lot of power in your low. Yeah. Just a little snippet. A fun fact that you might already know. Haydn. I'm excited. When he was 17 years old, got expelled from school because he thought it would be really funny to uh, cut off a pupil's uh, pigtail. (laughs) Rude. (laughs) Which honestly, I feel like if I were to identify with any of these like random things that these composers have done i feel like it's that one <laughs> just chomp, and pigtail gone i love it that's just so rude <laughs> it's so funny is that's truly like the worst non-fatal thing that you could do to somebody is just snip off their hair it is but also like i that's so much effort to just be rude <laughs> jesse's so upset I I am. Like, I would hate if somebody just cut off my hair. I know. The only person allowed to just chop off all my hair is me. So my last little thing is probably one of the most famous dramatic moments in music history, which is the the riot from Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Oh, yeah. And I think this is such an interesting idea because I just can't imagine at this point in my life going to a classical concert and starting a fight. <laughs> it, it's not something we consider in the classical music realm. Like, we are all arguing over when it is appropriate to clap still. Yeah. So the fact that you would just, like, actually start a riot is insane. But I love it, too, because it puts it into that world of kind of, like, what we expect out of, like, heavy metal rock. You know, kind of the 1970s attitude towards heavy metal and rock where we're living in the era. I don't know how much you know about, like, the era of satanic panic. One of my, I think, most interesting kind of recent history moments just this idea that like the devil lived in rock music Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that's what i think of when i think of the sprite of spring (laughs) but there's actually a bunch of weird factors surrounding this so the basic facts are it's 1913 in paris and there are a bunch of different accounts of what happens but basically the the prelude starts and by the time they get to the end of the prelude the audience is so loud that you can no longer hear the music. And from there, it's it's not necessarily universally agreed on, but up to 40 people end up being arrested. People are throwing things. People are throwing fists. Like, it becomes an all-out fight. Okay, so that's what we do know. There was a fight. There were things being thrown, and the audience got so rowdy, even right at the prelude, that the concert basically comes to a stop. The ballet stops, and people are arrested. How many is up to debate? The actual police file is now missing. Oh my gosh. So uh, here are a couple different accounts. So Lydia Sokolova, she's a dancer. So she's one of the dancers up there. She says that actually, that as soon as the conductor appeared, people started fighting. They hadn't even heard the music yet. They just saw the conductor and they started yelling. (laughs) Now Stravinsky, Stravinsky himself says, I think they came here for one of his other shows, but he thinks they came there for another one of his works and just weren't expecting to hear Rite of Spring, which is bizarre to us. Stravinsky's account from himself, and whether or not he says this for his own fame, he says the curtain opened on a group of knock-kneed and long-braided lolitas jumping up and down, and then a complete storm broke out. He said he went out and yelled, go to hell, 
because they were all very naive and stupid people. I don't know if anyone told Stravinsky that that's a terrible way to calm an audience who's angry at you already. <laughs> yeah, not de-escalating the situation whatsoever. The big question, though, is why? Why did all these people get so worked up? Why were they all fighting? And there's like 80 different theories. So some people obviously think it's the dissonance and the surprising nature of that music. It doesn't sound that crazy to our modern ears, but back then, like, the dissonance in that work and the actual, like, rhythms were almost offensive to them because they also were playing at kind of a pagan idea. You know, the rite of spring, it's very elemental. Uh, it's kind of got pagan roots, and so did the dance. It's hard for us to also think about dance being something political, but it, it takes on a different life during this era. And so the Russian ballet was kind of known for shocking the Parisian audience, which once again is a weird idea because to us, I think we think at Paris and think Paris is like the height of modernity in some of these eras. It's where the music was being made, but even Paris could be shocked. And so the actual choreographer for the dance was known to be very controversial, Nijinsky. Mm-hmm. And he had put on other shows that people had been very ups upset about, too. Some people think that it's the modernity of the piece. This pagan idea, these weird modern dance elements, all that dissonance, that's what they think. But that doesn't really make sense if they were already kind of starting to fight before the music was even played. Right. Some people think the actual director of the Russian ballet, Diaghilev, actually wanted controversy, that he wanted scandal to bring more people to the theater because nothing gets people to go see something more like a scandal surrounding it. So some people think that he actually very purposefully chose this. By most accounts, Diaghilev didn't actually like Rite of Spring as a piece of music. And he already knew that the choreographer was controversial. And he also knew that Paris had a lot of anti-Russian sentiment at the time. So some people also think he wanted this fight to break out. Hmm. And that there actually might have even been some people kind of played it. Other people think that it was just the sheer class warfare. There were a lot of, you know, very rich people who would go to see the opening night of shows. But there were also, you know, the cheap seats. And there were a bunch of bohemians from Paris who would come in. And so some people think that they were just either driven wild by the music or they just wanted to start a fight with rich people. But I, I love this because I love that this event has grown into the kind of this mystical idea because I've always heard it from the aspect of like the music just drove people insane. But now it's more like uh, it's possible that like the whole thing was almost set up to be that way. Like people either came in to protest all the Russians or they came to protest the rich or it was set up in such a way that there was always going to be a fight. We've got a conspiracy theory on our hands, people. I love that, though, because <laughs> that's such an interesting idea. And to me, that makes more sense if you had only heard the prelude. I mean, the prelude, yes, has a lot going on. But even then, it makes more sense to me that some people were just primed and ready to fight. Honestly, I think when we put it into context, it's really hilarious to think about, you know, if you're to say that people lost their noodle because of the dissonance and the rhythm and all this like crazy modernism. That we have this happening in 1913, and little do they know that Messian <laughs> is on his way to make things even yeah, Messian crazier. Coming. Like, little, little did they know if they thought that was wild. Just, just wait. <laughs> but I mean, like that's the fascinating thing to me about it is it really does remind me around like the conversation around certain types of music. They're like, you know, the devils in that music, or even then they were they knew that like. Stravinsky and Nijinsky and all of this would 
attract a certain type of crowd. In the same way that, like, I think people don't understand the circular reasoning of, like, rock music. Rock music is kind of counterculture, or it was. Rock music was counterculture, so it attracted counterculture people. So then people start to associate, and it becomes circular. Right. Yeah. Wow. People like the perception. We love that little Stravinsky is coming in here and just messing, just creating chaos. But also just as an interesting bit, another quote from another ballet, very famous ballet composer, Prokofiev says of Stravinsky, it's just Bach on the wrong notes. Ooh. Which is such a, like a unique, uh, sophisticated slam. I know these men are so creative in their pettiness. It's surprising to me. Oh, wow, wow, wow. Man, that's a lot of drama, Jesse. It is pretty funny because, I, like, you're right. We don't, as modern audiences, we don't think about going to a <laughs> premiere ready, you know, with the fists at the ready. I should have just announced it as a conspiracy theory. Yeah. But, like, then at the same time, it's, like, sports. <laughs> yeah. Still exists. So I see it. But, yeah, it's just so good. But, oh, wow. That's a lot of juicy drama from... Brahms and Clara to fights at the Red of Spring. What what a time. We love the composer and music drama. But thanks for joining us again this week, you guys. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. If you're not already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Opera Offstage or check out our website at opera-offstage.com. We're also super excited for next week's episode. We're going to be returning with another Issues and Opera episode, so be sure to tune to that. And once again, head to our stories to uh, check out these uh, composers and let us know who you think is is the real hottie. My my votes on <laughs> Bernstein or, uh, or Brahms, but let us know. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye! Bye!